This is Garrison Hardy with your Cross Politic Daily News Brief for Tuesday, November 15th, 2022. We're already flying through November. We're heading for Christmas. It's not stopping. Just a heads up, ladies and gentlemen, I will be out of the country into Canada with Gabe the Waterboy the 16th through the 21st. So we'll only have a news brief today and Wednesday morning. But not to worry, I'll be back next week to bring you the news. Before we get started with the news, let's talk about Red Balloon. Not so long ago, the American dream was alive and well. Employees who worked hard were rewarded and employers looked for people who could do the job, not for people who had the right political views. Redballoon.work is a job site designed to get us back to what made American businesses successful. Free speech, hard work, and having fun. If you're a free speech employer who wants to hire employees who focus on their work and not identity politics, then post a job on Red Balloon. If you're an employee who is being censored at work or is being forced to comply with the current zeitgeist and it changes almost daily, post your resume on Red Balloon and work for a new job. That is Redballoon.work, the job site where free speech is still alive. Redballoon.work. All right, let's get to the news. And, of course, we head south to Arizona. Maricopa election officials launched a PAC in 2021 to stop MAGA candidates. This isn't suspicious at all. It has been revealed that embattled Arizona's Maricopa County recorder Stephen Ricker and and Supervisor Chairman Bill Gates in 2021 started a political action committee to stop MAGA candidates. On November 17, 2021, Meg Cunningham from the Kansas City Beacon tweeted that Ricker, the Maricopa County recorder, is launching a pact to support Republicans running for non-federal Arizona offices who, quote, acknowledge the validity of the 2020 election and condemn the events of January 6, 2021, as a terrible result of the lies told about the November election. Ricker retweeted her, saying, quote, thanks to a few generous donors, this is now launching. Join me if you care about traditional Republican stuff. Free people, free markets, rule of law, but also don't believe the conspiracies about 2020 election on that January 6th was a tourist event. The PAC called pro-democracy Republicans of Arizona claims on their website that they are fighting to keep our democratic institutions alive. The website is sparse on details aside from how to donate, but does have a few sentences on their mission. The Arizona election wasn't stolen. We Republicans simply had a presidential candidate who lost, while we had many other candidates who won. It's time we Republicans accept and acknowledge that fact. Candidates come and go, but our democratic institutions are long-lasting and peaceful transitions of power are a hallmark of the United States. We should not abandon this history in favor of conspiracy theorists and demagery. End quote. To that end, they are launching the PAC to support pro-democracy Arizona Republicans. Political pundits, candidates, and others have continued to slam Arizona's Maricopa County Elections Department for ongoing failures in their election system. Almost a week after Election Day, the county, as well as the state, are some of the last to have not had candidates declared as winners as votes continue to be counted. As Secretary of State, gubernatorial Democratic candidate Katie Hobbs was in charge of overseeing the election after failing to rescue herself. He joins us. Now, Carrie Lake, thanks so much for coming on. Where do you think you are in this? Uh, well, I, I feel 100% certain I'm going to win. The question is, how big will that win be? Can you believe this, Tucker? We still have 650,000 votes that have not been counted. And guess who these voters are? They're the people who showed up 
on election day. Right. They're the people, 275,000 of them are people who brought their mail-in ballots to the polls on election day because they don't trust the mail and they don't trust the drop boxes. So guess who those voters are? There are voters. And we're only down by a few thousand votes right now. When those votes come in, I think we're going to see a lot of liberal minds kind of blowing up. Uh, this seems, I, I mean, I'm not alleging a crime, but broadly speaking, it's just criminal to screw it up this badly. Like, did anyone know this was going to happen? Are you confident that it's on the level? It's just so outrageous. What is this? I'm not shocked at all. I mean, they've been calling me an election denier. I've been sounding the alarm on 2020, November 3rd election, which was disastrous. And we had problems in the August 2nd primary as well. And now we have the same problems. They have all this time to get this figured out. And you know where the main problems are? 20% of those machines went down, the tabulator machines. And I noticed they were primarily in Republican areas of town, Arcadia, Anthem, a lot of different areas. It was really a shame. We ended up voting in a very liberal part of town because we can choose which vote center to go to. And they said they'd had no problems. The bigger issue is we can't keep having this problem. This is what I've been trying Trying to say, I want all Democrats, independents, and Republicans to trust in the system. And when I win, and trust me, we will win this, this is going to be top of my agenda. Day one, I'm going to take my hand off the Bible. We're issuing a declaration of invasion at the border. And I'm getting my lawmakers, I'm getting the legislators to a special session to change our elections so that they are fair, honest, and transparent. And we get rid of those machines that are not reliable. And and really, um, obviously, we saw what kind of problems they can cause. On Wednesday night, Republican gubernatorial nominee and Trump-endorsed candidate Carrie Lake called out her opponent in Maricopa County, Ricker, as incompetent. The results of Arizona's gubernatorial race between Hobbs and Lake are still pending, as is the senatorial race between Democratic Democrat Senator Mark Kelly and Republican challenger Blake Masters. Elsewhere, appeals court rules against Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program. A federal appeals court on November 14th entered a ruling against the student loan forgiveness program announced by President Joe Biden's administration earlier this year. Erasing student loan debt would be, quote, irreversible, a panel of the St. Louis-based U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit ruled, entering an injunction against the administration pending the appeal. The panel consisted of U.S. Circuit Judges Bobby Shepard, a George W. Bush appointee, Ralph Erickson, a Donald Trump appointee and Stephen Grass, another Trump appointee. They sided with Missouri and five other Republican-led states that had sued Biden and Education Secretary Miguel Cardona after the announcement of the program, alleging that it was illegal for the executive branch to enact such widespread loan relief. Biden administration officials have said that the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003 grants the authority for the relief, which is expected to cost about $400 billion and apply to tens of millions of Americans. The appeals court ruling came after U.S. District Judge Henry Edward Autry, a George W. Bush appointee, rejected state suit, finding that they lacked standing to sue on behalf of the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, or MOELA. The three appeals judges disagree in finding that Moella is effectively an arm of the state of Missouri, and even if it wasn't, the financial effect of the administration's debt discharge still threatens Missouri because it would be affect the state's Lewis and Clark Discovery Fund, capital fund that can support projects at colleges. The fund receives money from Moella. The ruling follows a separate appeals court decision to temporarily block the program and U.S. District Judge Mark Pittman, a Trump appointee, finding it unconstitutional 
and vacating it. After Pittman's ruling, dated November 8th, the same day as the midterm elections, the administration stopped accepting applications for the program. Administration lawyers have already appealed that ruling, and the government will hold on to information from the 26 million borrowers, including the 16 million who have already been approved for relief. So it can quickly process the relief once we prevail in courts. That was according to White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. From Arizona to Missouri to Oregon, Oregon leftists bragging about new gun control law. The red wave in Oregon didn't happen for the most part, though Republicans took a House seat here and there and performed well in the more rural western part of the state, as usual. The hype surrounding the possibility that Democrat Tina Kotick could be defeated turning the governor's mansion red fizzled in the end. Another piece of bad news turned up in a ballot measure that didn't draw all that much attention on the national level. Measure 114 passed on Election Day, ushering in a new round of gun control restrictions and requirements. NBC News launched into a celebration of this victory, in which they bemoaned the rising number of deaths involving firearms in recent years while claiming, without evidence, that this new law in Oregon would do something about it. In this climate, voters in Oregon have fought back heading into midterm elections. Voters took it upon themselves to strengthen gun laws by proposing Measure 114, a ballot initiative that requires a background check. This is from NBC News, by the way. A license and safety training to buy arms in the state. The measure also prohibits large-capacity magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition. Oregon's measure is particularly important because Congress, the courts, and many state legislators have done so little to contain the violence. Meanwhile, the number of gun deaths in the United States has skyrocketed. In fact, our analysis of the data shows that guns drove a recent spike in homicides and suicides. Again, this is from NBC News. Given the Supreme Court's expansion of Americans' right to own guns, it can be frustrating to consider what preventative steps are possible. The Oregon referendum, however, is an example of how laws can prevent gun violence. Firearm purchaser licensing, as contained in the ballot measure, is one of the most effective policies at reducing gun deaths. First of all, there's nothing really unique or groundbreaking about this measure when it's compared to similar proposals in other liberal states. They're requiring all purchasers of firearms to complete a background check, which everyone already had to do anyway, and complete mandatory gun safety training before being able to obtain a license to own a gun. It also limits the size of magazines to 10 rounds of ammunition. What Measure 114 really does is make it more time-consuming, expensive, and laborious for lawful residents to legally obtain a firearm. NBC goes to to great lengths to document how many gun-related deaths have been recorded in the count in the country of late, concluding that Oregon's law will impact those statistics in a positive way. As usual, what's entirely missing in this liberal analysis is any sort of context or even a nod to the reality of gun crime in the United States. Yes, more people are getting shot, and that's only one facet of the ri- rising violent crime rates we've been seeing, primarily in urban areas. And the NBC report conveniently ignores the fact that the vast, vast majority of the people being shot are the victims of criminals who could never pass a background check and get their guns on the black or gray markets. Also ignored in this report is the reality that lower-income minority citizens are disproportionately the victims of these gun crimes. And by making it harder for law-abiding citizens to obtain a firearm, you're making it hard for them to defend themselves if such a thing happens to them. Moving on, FTX CEO detained by authorities in Bahamas. 
Sam Bankman-Fried, the former CEO of the collapsing cryptocurrency company FTX, along with two others associated with the company, Director of Engineering Nishad Singh and co-founder Gary Wang, are under supervision in the Bahamas after the trio reportedly were planning to flee to Dubai. According to the Cointelgraft, Cointelgraft, we'll go with that. Right now, three of them, Sam, Gary, and Nishad, are under supervision in the Bahamas, which means it will be hard for them to leave. Dubai is a city in the United Arab Emirates that, prior to February 24, 2022, had no extradition treaty with the United States. However, as of the date, the two countries signed a mutual legal assistance treaty, which does permit extradition. The multi-billion dollar cryptocurrency company, FTX, run by CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, the second biggest Democrat donor right after George Soros, collapsed last week as details emerged regarding their financial practices, which led to a run by customers on FTX. FTX did not have the funds to pay out. FTX is under investigation by U.S. Secretaries and Exchange Commission, SEC, regarding the management and handling of client funds. With this latest development, FTX has more questions to answer as scrutiny builds around the SEC investigation, CryptoSlate reported. Roughly $5 billion was withdrawn from FTX on Sunday. The trouble began for FTX last week when rival crypto company Beyonce said they were selling off their holdings to FTT, the proprietary proprietary coin of FTX. After Beyonce's comments, FTX was in financial trouble and essentially sought a bailout from other firms, Beyonce among them. The New York Post reports that FTX's implosion followed revelations that co-founder Sam Bankman-Fried had been funneling money to a sister trading company run by his girlfriend. That company, Almeida Research, is run by Bankman-Fried's girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, and is also based in the Bahamas. Beyonce announced that they would buy the company, then pulled out of the deal, saying that after some due diligence, they decided it would not be a good investment. Part of the issue for Beyonce is that Almeida Research, helmed by Bankman-Fried's girlfriend, holds a great deal of their assets in FTT and FTX, had invested their customers' funds into Almeida through a back door without oversight. Details have emerged that FTX had partnered with Ukraine to process donations to their war efforts within days of Joe Biden pledging billions of American taxpayer dollars to the country. Home. It's where you build your legacy. Where traditions are started, seeds are planted, meals are shared, and stories are told. Home is where you prepare to go out into the world. Finding the home that's perfect for your family, that's a big job. Story Real Estate in Moscow is their top real estate team. They give people real estate advice all over the country, family homes, investments, land, new construction, or commercial. They know real estate. If you've thought about a move to Moscow or anywhere in the country, reach out to get connected with Story Real Estate Agent. Wherever you're going, they can help guide you home. Visit storyrealestate.com. That is storyrealestate.com. Now, it's time for my favorite topic, sports. This one hits close to home for our producer, Neil, as this was his first ever favorite fighter when it came to MMA. It's a sad one. Two-time UFC title challenger Anthony Rumble Johnson, dead at 38. Anthony Johnson was a Bellator fighter and two-time UFC title challenger. He passed away again at the age of 38. MMA Fighting has confirmed the news with sources with knowledge of the situation following an outpouring of messages on social media regarding Johnson's death. The cause of death has yet to be announced. Johnson is best remembered for a pair of UFC stints from 2007 to 2012 and 2014 to 2017. 
His first run with the promotion saw him emerge as an intriguing welterweight prospect with unmatched knockout power, while his second run occurred as a light heavyweight. It was during Johnson's second UFC run that he defeated the likes of Glover Teixeira, Ryan Bader, Alexander Gustafsson, and Phil Davis, and earned him two cracks at the light heavyweight championship. He announced his retirement after a 2017 title loss to Daniel Cornier, but returned to competition in 2021 and fought once for Bellator, defeating Jose Augusto by second-round knockout. In October 2021, Johnson was to fight Bellator lightweight champion Vadim Nemikov, but as part of the Grand Prix tournament, but was forced to withdraw from that contest due to an undisclosed illness. Johnson's pro MMA record was 23-6 and with 17 wins coming by way of KO and TKO. Johnson's pro MMA record was 23-6 and with 17 wins coming by way of KO and TKO. Rest in peace, Johnson. This has been your Cross-Politic Daily News Brief. If you liked the show, go ahead and hit that share button for me down below. If you want to sign up for a club membership or a magazine subscription, head on over to fightlaughfeast.com. And as always, if you want to send me a news story, if you want to ask about our future conferences, or if you want to become a corporate partner of Cross-Politic, go ahead and email me at garrison at fightlaughfeast.com. For Cross-Politic News, I'm Garrison Hardy. Have a great rest of your day, and Lord bless.